Hey, y'all, welcome to the Marty Smith's America podcast. Travis has made an executive decision that we've done away with numbering them. Well, you a- you asked, you're like, what number is this, 105, 104? We've been off for a couple weeks. I didn't feel like counting or going back and looking, so I took the the easy way out, the, maybe the Stugatz way out, and said, we're just going to not count anymore. I'm just going to call it 105. What the hell? Uh, yeah, we'll just make up a number each time. I want to say thank you so much to every one of you who has reached out to Travis or to me regarding our absentia. We haven't put a podcast out here in in maybe 10 days, two weeks, something like that. I've been all over the, the place covering NASCAR races and doing NASCAR pieces for Sports Center, interviewing people. Um, and I was in an RV all week last week, all around the South, driving a 40-foot bus with my family, uh, capturing content for Academy Sports and Outdoors, one of my tremendous partners. We capture a lot of outdoors content, hunting, fishing, uh, doing our thing uh, for their social channels, and I love doing it every year. And, and so we went around the South doing that to Charleston, South Carolina, and to Clarksville, Georgia, and to the Fontana Dam in far western North Carolina on the East Tennessee border and just had a blast. But my, my recreational vehicle experience was like Cousin Eddie on steroids. And I will tell you guys, a lot of you heard me discussing this on Marty and McGee, and I barely tipped the proverbial iceberg in the comedy of errors that was the RV. Travis and I were going to spend this podcast today diving headfirst into all of those details, but y'all are going to have to wait for that, and I'm going to tell you why. I had the unbelievable opportunity to interview Dr. Chris Hutchinson, who was an All-American for the University of Michigan on the defensive line in 1992. He was... The school up north, but keep going. The team captain, yeah. Us, us, our, our conversation with with Chris had Travis twitching and shaking the whole time. Uh, Doctor Hutchison was recruited by Bo Schembechler's staff, and then he played for Gary Moeller. Uh, he is now a physician fighting COVID nineteen at Beaumont Health in Plymouth, Michigan, and he is also the father of a college football player. His son, Aiden, plays for Jim Harbaugh right now at the University of Michigan and is a budding star on Don Brown's defensive line there at Michigan. And I'm going to tell you all something. I have heard a lot of speculation and chatter and talk about how college football is going to look and what it might look like and is it even going to happen. You have not heard the perspective that you're about to hear from a guy who played the game at an extremely high level and is also the father of a player who is going to send his son back to school next week to participate in voluntary workouts. It's fascinating. And, and again, look, I've tried to consume all of the content. I've never heard, Travis, have you heard this level of A, detail, and B, vulnerability? No, I mean, before this interview, we said we would – decide what we were going to do for this podcast. We want to add an interview to it. And once this got started, when we got down uh, what they were going to do with the protocols, we texted each other and said, change the plans. This is being aired today. Like the, the, the stuff is, 
uh, I haven't heard from anybody. A coach, a reporter, any show I haven't heard it from. It's extremely revealing and extremely detailed about what the plans are for returning to the field. And it's interesting because Dr. Hutchison also revealed to us that he's been a great resource for Michigan's athletic director, Ward Manuel, and head coach Jim Harbaugh and Harbaugh's staff on the right way to do this. And it was so interesting to hear their plan. And and Dr. Hutchison shares a lot of that with us. Before we get to that, I want to remind you guys that our boy Stu, our boy Stu Gotts, has an unbelievable podcast, extremely popular. It's the Stupidity Podcast. He has great guests all the time. They have so much fun. I mean, the guy had Tom Brady on recently. Like, come on. That's like the, that, that's as hard as getting Michael Jordan, which someday Travis is going to get off his ass and get me Michael Jordan. It, uh, it's a great podcast. We will, in the coming weeks, I promise, have Stu Gotts, like you've never heard him before here on Marty Smith's America. We did that interview several weeks ago now, and you guys know the funny Stu Gotts. You don't realize that in so many cases, he's the smartest guy in the room. And I dove into that with him. It's a Stu Gotts you haven't heard before. And in a moment, we'll get to our interview with Dr. Chris Hutchison, who again is fighting COVID-19. And guys, with COVID-19 shutting down so many businesses, it might be giving you some anxiety. NetSuite reduces that anxiety by giving you visibility and control. With so many critical decisions being made and yet to be made, you need the right numbers, and you need them right now. NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. With NetSuite, we give you financials, cash flow, payroll, inventory, and more all in one place. So you have clear visibility and total control of your business. NetSuite customers have flexibility to work from anywhere with immediate clarity on critical information right at their fingertips. There is no more guessing. There is no more waiting. Make smarter decisions with confidence because you have crystal clear visibility regarding your numbers. Join more than 20,000 companies, 20,000 companies who trust NetSuite to stay in control. Receive your free guide, Managing Business Uncertainty, and schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash marty. That's netsuite.com slash M-A-R-T-Y. Don't wait. Get your free guide and schedule your free product tour at netsuite.com slash marty. Now, I can't wait for you guys to hear this conversation with Dr. Chris Hutchison. Again, played at Michigan. He was an All-American. And now he's a physician in the greater Detroit area. You're about to learn, team. I hope you enjoy this. Here's our conversation with Dr. Chris Hutchinson. Dr. Chris Hutchinson is a former University of Michigan defensive lineman. He was an All-American in 1992 and a team captain. I'm sure that never gets old hearing, no matter how far removed you are from your playing days. Doctor played for Bo. He played for... Gary Moeller, and is now a physician fighting COVID-19 at Beaumont Health in Plymouth, Michigan. Uh, We're so grateful to have you today, 
and your perspective and insight. And I'll start with this. We're roughly three months into the COVID pandemic, doctor. It feels like three years to me, man. How are you doing? How's your mental health? Certainly on the uh, on the men. We it got pretty rough here in Southeast Michigan. Uh, I work at one of the hospitals, uh, Beaumont Health, uh, uh, just north of Detroit, where we saw a pretty heavy toll uh, on our population. It was it was a big stress on everybody, our community, and all the providers. Describe the evolution of your experience treating COVID nineteen. Just walk me through the the, the whole range. Well, we had just, uh, I have all my kids go to University of Michigan, so we had just come back from spring break, and it was just trickling in. We would do a, a test a day, maybe, and then within a week, it had spiked, and we were overrun, and it was the transition from zero to 60 was something, I mean, I've been, I've been doing emergency medicine for over 20 years, and I've never seen anything like this before. It went... It was it was a spike in the truest sense of a spike. We every day was a new meeting because every protocol, every criteria, everything was changing rapidly. What does overrun feel like when you're battling something that not only you've never seen before, but mankind has never seen before? It's the fact of the unknown. I mean, we're used to in emergency medicine, you know. Get, getting a radio call that we're three minutes out or somebody dropping somebody at the front door. So we're used to dealing with the unexpected when it's not supposed to happen. That's just the nature. But this was completely different. Uh, we didn't know anything about the virus. We didn't know how it was going to hit. I mean, we had inklings from China, but clearly it took on a, a different perspective here in the United States. And the adjustment and the mental flexibility to realize that how you treated these patients yesterday is not how you're going to treat them today. And not only was that stressful on us as providers, but it was stressful on the patients because they wanted to come in, they wanted to get a test, Well, we didn't have enough tests. So we have to allocate these resources. And let's be honest, people in the United States aren't used to that. And from a public standpoint, they're you know, they're in a frenzy because they want to make sure they don't have it. And they come in and we say, I'm sorry, I can't test you. And it was very frustrating to have to explain that to people that I'm sorry, our resources are very limited. I can only use them on a certain number of people. I imagine you must have one story that really encapsulates the experience of treating this disease, maybe a certain individual or a family or a moment. What is that story? For me, it was probably several different snippets from a, several different patient encounters. Um, but probably the most impactful was how much something that we didn't know about this disease changed the way we functioned. Uh, so as emergency physicians, we interface with the first responders. So the paramedics call us on their way in, letting us know they're bringing us, you know, 69-year-old with chest pain. Well, we've got a phone call, and they called me over because it was a priority one, and it was a patient who had, and this was early on, so we didn't really know what to call presumed COVID. So it was like, well, it's, you know, shorter breath and fever who had a cardiac arrest. And you're like, oh, boy. And we had just started to learn that this is going to be the most difficult interaction because that sort of patient exposes the entire staff the most 
And so, you know, you're getting prepared and you're dining all your PPE and uh, prepared for the worst. And then we get a phone call back or a radio call back that says, uh, you know, we're not coming in. The protocol changed. Uh, if we can't get them back, uh, we're just going to call it in the field. And everybody kind of looked at each other and we went, what do you, what do you mean? I mean, we always bring these people in. It's been just a couple of minutes. You know, most of our catchment area for our ER is, you know, a few minutes away from, from an ambulance. And because of this risk of exposure to the population and how poorly people that had cardiac arrests with COVID did, it, the county had made the determination that it's more risk to providers and, and everybody else on the whole spectrum that they just run the codes in the field and don't bring them in. If they get them back and they get a pulse back, then you can bring them. So just to have this opportunity to intervene to potentially save somebody and have that cut off was uh, a demoralizing blow because that's what you go into this for. I go into this for the sickest of the sick, and now I'm not able to help them. It sounds completely counterintuitive to everything you'd ever – I know you've kind of mentioned this as we've chatted here, but – that encapsulates how counterintuitive it was. People get sick or people get hurt or injured. They come to you. You have a certain protocol to make them better. And then suddenly this unknown specter comes in and it rewrites the paradigm. Absolutely. Just like a lack of resources. We don't, we don't have that here. Sorry, ma'am, I can't test you. I mean, I, I got into arguments with 77-year-old women because they wanted their tests. And I'm like, ma'am, you're going to be able to go home. You look good. Please shelter in place. If you get worse, please come back. And she was angry. This one I'm thinking about, she was really angry. I mean, she, she I mean, I'm not, you know, as, as huge as some people, but I'm, you know, 6'2", 250 pounds. And this little old lady got up in my face and says, you're not going to test me? And I said, no, ma'am, I can't. I've now spoken with several. I did a series of features. I'm, they're ongoing. A former collegiate athletes who are on the front lines like yourself and invariably they mention the emotional toll of families not being able to embrace their loved ones who are sick or, or be in pro close proximity to those people. What, what's the emotion for you, doctor, of explaining to a family that their loved one is not doing well or might even die via FaceTime? It, it was, again, a completely different, uncharted, anxiety-provoking, because we've got to be the first one, because no one knew about this. The media, you know, had only just started to touch on it, so the community didn't really know this was a thing. I mean, normally, we get people at the bedside, and if, you know, to ease people in the face, you know, if they're going to die, have everybody in there. Now, it's it's completely different, and to have to, you know, Tell somebody, even if it's over the phone, you don't have to look them in the face and FaceTime. It's, it's a tough pill to swallow to say to them, I'm sorry, you can't come in. And they're, they, well, what am I supposed to do? And I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't, I can't answer that. I don't, I don't know what to do. We, this is all new to us and all I can do is apologize. And to have that, those constraints placed on you on end of life and critically ill patients, it was, that was a very difficult scenario to get through. What concern did you have for your own well-being? You know, I, my group was very, the, the, the reaction was very different. 
me, I'm a healthy 50 year old guy. My risk is pretty low. Um, you know, this is kind of what I signed up for, you know, took my clothes off at the back door, showered immediately, you know, shoes never entered the, my house, but I had partners who rented Airbnbs for a month or two. Um, people that, you know, had the ability to have a guest room and they stayed there. Um, so it, the, the ability and what people, how they dealt with it was very different. I was okay with, you know, changing scrubs at the hospital, you know, doing all these sorts of things. Was it a risk? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I would have probably thought about it differently if, you know, my mother lived with me or one of my kids had asthma. I might have been more aggressive about restricting our personal interaction. Uh, but we're all relatively young and healthy, so I thought the risk was pretty low. But, again, I wouldn't have faulted you at all for getting an Airbnb for a month like some of my partners did. When this all first started to break and, and you know, living in a, a world of sports and, and making my living on live sports, I was covering the Southeastern Conference men's basketball tournament in Nashville. And Adam Silver decides to postpone the NBA season. And then it, as you know, became that proverbial domino effect. I, it was very difficult to process it all and and how it immediately began to shut down the country. What's your perspective on the kind of historic implications of this? It is unprecedented, quite literally, right? Absolutely. I mean, my Michigan basketball team was on the court for the first game of the, the Big Ten championship, uh, uh, the Big Ten uh, tournament, ready to play. They, had, they didn't have any st- uh, fans in the stands. And, I mean, they're warming up, and it's like, well, and they just pulled the plug, and and you, it's it's easy to say that you can't process it, but when you really can't process, what do you mean there's not going to be an NCAA tournament? What? No, I, you can't. I mean, you literally can't get your arms around it. You're n- no, I just get denial. It's nothing. What? We can't. This is like the NCAA tournament. What? And then once you started to come to terms with that this is the real deal. Now, I mean, me for a sports fan, well, now everything's on the table. You know, we're not going to have, you know, anything the rest of the summer. What's this going to mean to our whole life? And obviously now we found out, but at that time when you're going through that, it was such a, such a seismic shift in thinking that it, you, you couldn't even process it, how, the, the grandiosity of it. And on that same note, uh, obviously you were an extremely, extremely good college football player, high achiever on the field, and your son Aiden plays for Harbaugh now in Ann Arbor. What has to happen from your perspective for us to have college football this fall? How confident are you that'll happen? I'm really confident it's going to happen. I think in some respects college football got lucky uh, just from the sheer timing of the pandemic and the season. Um, I honestly thought there was, we would have a little bit more help from the, uh, the pro leagues on their protocols. I thought they'd be a little bit farther along. Obviously major league baseball took a turn that I don't think anybody can appreciate, but um, I am, you know, obviously these are young, healthy people. That doesn't mean that college athletes can't get sick. 
And obviously we've seen them test positive already. I hope just based on the, the numbers and the statistics of kids that actually, you know, young people that get sick, that nobody ends up in the hospital or worse. But, you know, I, I obviously I have a bias. I was a former player and I have a son that plays for, for Michigan. But I am confident enough that the risk that they're going to be exposed to is low enough and the benefit to college sports and getting things back to normal now that we have flattened the curve um, that I'm willing to expose my own son to these risks. I am 100% confident uh, for letting my son go back. We have had uh, Zoom meetings with the coaching staff actually just uh, two days ago. They had all the families on board and Harbaugh and all the medical staff. They went through line by line the protocol and what's going to happen when they report June 15th. Uh, we took what surveys. Um, so when they, they, they're going to report, they're going to stagger them a little bit. So uh, Monday the 15th and Tuesday the 16th, everyone is, obviously this is voluntary. Uh, they're going to report. They are going to, no one's going into Schembechler Hall. They are uh, given a time slot every five minutes. They're uh, uh processing and student athlete every five minutes at the student health center. They're getting their swab. They're getting uh, blood drawn for their antibodies. And then they're to go back to their campus housing for two days until the tests come back. As you, they told us the turnarounds about 24 to 48 hours, uh, depending. Um, and then at that point, only until you test negative, are you allowed to be uh, entered into the building, which is going to be, and, they, and, and Harbaugh has sort of sat in and watched Aiden on some of his Zoom meetings as they're preparing the kids for a different college experience. How there's going to be one indoor and one out. And there's meetings of certain sizes. And what they're doing to try to contain it is, so my son lives with five other football players. That's going to be his workout group for the first month. Uh, So in case somebody does get sick, you're not going to spread it to the rest of the team. You're going to spread it to the people we live with at worst. So, uh, and we have a protocol of if somebody does test positive, what do you do with them? Well, you got to quarantine them. Well, how do you quarantine, you know, Aiden Hutchinson if he lives with five other football players? Well, they've, the university is part of um, the process for when they're at least tentatively planning. And Michigan hasn't officially announced that they're having school in the fall, but it'll be coming in the next week or two, that there's a dorm set up in one part of campus where everybody, it's a, it's a unique dorm that has its own bathroom, uh, and so no one has to interact. So all the students that are sick and the student athletes that are sick, they will be sent to this certain dorm. They, don't ha- they won't go down to the, 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 you know, the, the, the cafeteria. The food will be brought to them. Um, so they, they've thought through that, and then they've talked about the sterilization and the cleaning techniques after every wave of person uh, goes through. They've stretched out the workout six days a week, so they limit the total volume of people in the building in any 24-hour period. Um, granted, and they said this repeatedly, you're not going to stop every case, but you do things like that. You wear masks. Be smart in public. Um, you know that's going to go a long way to limit your risk and exposure uh, to this virus. I don't know what. What, if any, I'm not a parent of a collegiate athlete, 
liability waivers you may already have to sign before? I don't know. Where, where is there any of that type of thing, Doctor, where now that COVID is a part of the equation, you as parents or, or the players themselves have to sign any sort of waiver? You know, obviously that is the culture that we live in in America, and, and I think that's probably what a little bit of that thought process goes into uh, making up these these um, protocols. There, you know, you and I both know you're if you do things that are out of the standard and you expose people to an unnecessary risk, you're liable to get sued. And obviously, you go to a big university like Michigan, they have big deep pockets, so it's an easy target. So I think that's part of the the process is they use that information. And, 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 you know, it's not a major process because obviously, I mean, they've told us over and over again, this is the most important thing is the is the health of the, the kids. But, um, no, it, to answer that directly, we haven't had to sign anything. Um, I, you know, and Harbaugh, Jim and I talked about this because uh, he got a little bit of my feedback, obviously, being a parent and a physician cause with this survey that we had. And, you know, I said, you need to be prepared for somebody's parent that says, I'm not comfortable with him playing. So, uh, you know, you need to be able to have a reasonable response back to them. And I think that has come out. And, you know, we've seen that with different uh, professional athletes that say, I'm not comfortable playing. And, you know, honestly, at this point, you just have to say, that's fine. I, we understand that. And especially with and one of the great things about college sports is you get people from the city, people from the country, people from all over the world. I mean, Aiden's own defensive line meeting room. He's got people from Scotland and Germany. Uh, so the belief systems that they're going to come into this are potentially going to be very different than, than mine and Aiden's. So you have to be very cautious about, you know, how you roll this out and give people the opportunity to digest it and to be able to pull themselves out because they may not be comfortable with it. Cause we've already heard stories of some parents saying, you know what? I, I don't want my son to be there on the 15th or the 16th. Give me a few days. And if everything goes okay, then I'll let him come. And you know what? You have an open dialogue about it. And if they're still not comfortable with it, you got to respect that. I mean, this, you can't force anybody to do this in this sort of scenario. That's interesting that, and, and makes perfect sense that, Coach Harbaugh would use you as that kind of resource because you really do have acute emotion on both sides. You have lived it as a physician and you're living it as a father of a player. What's that like to have those conversations with him and be be that sort of resource for him? Well, I remember the first uh, phone call I got. Uh, as he starts to ask me these questions, I'm, I'm the back of my mind's going – I wonder where he's going with this. Cause this is before he'd mentioned anything about, you know, the, the, the parent survey. And we're, I mean, we're doing a deep dive into coronavirus. And then about halfway through it, I, the light bulb goes off. I'm like, he's talking to me because he wants to see where I stand. He wants to see what kind of a resource I'm going to be for him to help him in this journey. And it was kind of funny just that when you, you know, Jim, we didn't play together. He was, we were separated by, you know, he graduated, I think, in 87. And I started in 88. So, but we knew a lot of the same people. I knew him. I'd met him before, but we weren't, you know, necessarily friends. But, you know, when you get to this discussion, you're like, oh, I get why he's, why this is happening. And then we've talked like several more times. We had text messages between me and the athletic director and the trainer and, 
just to sort of help infuse my opinion into what's going on. It was it was a really good experience just to sort of say, you know, to be a part of the program like that, to say, have him bring you in under his arm and say, hey, Chris, share with your experience with these, you know, these people that I meet with basically almost every day about this topic. And so it was really uh, great to be a part of uh, and, you know, just happy to contribute. What amazing insight. Uh, I, I really appreciate you sharing that with us. I, I'm going to ask you just a couple more things about your own career, and I'll get you out of here. I know you got real things to do in life rather than talk to me for 30 minutes. But what was it like being recruited by Bo Schembechler? Well, my class had a unique perspective because that was uh, my class. Um, so I started at Michigan in 88. Bo had just had his second heart event. So he wasn't on the road yet. So I had um, Lloyd Carr and Moeller in my living room because Bo couldn't go yet. So the first time I ever met Bo was my official visit. So it was a little bit different. So he wasn't walking around. So, But it actually set up for a transition, a great transition, because, you know, Bo lasted uh, two years until he retired. And then Mo was my head coach for the next three years. So it really worked out uh, pretty well. I mean, it was obviously, I mean, I grew up in Texas. So um, you, you heard about Bo for sure. But, you know, the, there was a Southwest Conference and, you know, I got chastised by parents of the some of the guys I played with in high school that Texas kids don't leave Texas. Because you can, you know, you could, yeah, you're picking the litter there down there in Texas. There's so many teams to play for. So even by me going on a visit, to go visit Bo got people's feathers ruffled back in 1987 uh, in Texas. Uh, but it was a great experience. I mean, Bo was, you know, my, my position coach actually played for Bo at Miami of Ohio, and that's when Bo was young and he was uh, fired up. He would tell us stories. When we thought we had it bad during two days, he would say, let me tell you about what we did on spring break when I played for <laughs> Bo. And they would have three-a-days, and, you know, it was this awful thing. And, then, you know, the same thing happens now with Aiden. They don't even have two-a-days anymore. And so, I clearly, every time they're in camp, I tell him how rough he thinks he's got it. I go, well, imagine having another practice today. And so, you know, great experience. I mean, it's been, a, it's been an awesome journey. Chris, you and I have turned into the guys who walked uphill both ways in the snow, haven't we? I'm 44. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, I'll get you out of here on this, brother. Uh, how often do you mention to friends that you never lost to Ohio State? Uh, every opportunity. Uh, <laughs> it's funny. Aiden was given an interview, and he tweaked that a little bit. He said, my dad beat Ohio State all five years. And some reporters said, no, that's not right. He's like, no, my dad said that repeatedly. That's all I've heard my entire life. I'm like, pay attention to the words, son. I never lost to Ohio State. <laughs> He's looking at me. I go, we tied them once because he doesn't know what a tie is. They didn't, right. they didn't have ties. They don't have ties now. He still looks at me and goes, wait, your senior year, you went 9-0-3? How did you do that? I'm like, this is what it was. There's no tiebreaker. There's no nothing. And that whole so that didn't even equate to him that you could have a tie. So that whole process of you know me being honest but telling it in a way that you know makes it look even better. I mean, obviously it was a great a great time for Michigan football. We we won five Big Ten championships, and uh, my classmate was Desmond Howard. So to be a part of a uh, Heisman Trophy winning season 
four Rose Bowls. I mean, that's, you know, it doesn't get any better than that. You know, I'm curious. I, I am going to ask one more, and I'll leave you alone. As as a very high-achieving Michigan alumnus who played for legends and whose son following in your footsteps is playing for Coach Harbaugh, it's interesting. The national narrative on Coach Harbaugh is interesting. Uh, Chris, I've been around him. I've gone to Paris with them. I've gone to Rome with them. I've covered their games. I've gotten to know Coach Harbaugh pretty well um, in comparison to a lot of the national media. And it's interesting how polarizing he can be. What's your What's your perspective or opinion on how he's done in that program? I mean, the, the, the good or the bad of it, you're judged by Ohio State and Michigan State. And when you struggle mightily against one of those teams, that's going to be the first thing we talk about. And when you haven't won a Big Ten championship, that's going to be the first two paragraphs out of people's mouth. I mean, that's just the way it is. You sign up for that at Michigan. But I, I think that that lends a light to how, you know, razor thin the difference is. You have one different player in there that makes a play in that overtime game. And this narrative is very soft compared to that because you win a Big Ten championship, you beat Ohio State, but, you know, you, you lose the spot from the official and the whole conversation is different. Um, you know, I have, we have a group chat of all the guys that I, that I played with. There's about 12 of us on this group text and we've got into it a couple of times, you know, they're angry fans like everybody else. And I try not to, you know, be the Homer and, you know, just defend the guy and, a lot of them like to pick up on this narrative about how quirky he is and these sorts of things. And I'm like, you know, he's, cause when he was here for our in-house visit, he's like, uh, you know, I would even call him quirky. He's just like the, the uncle you don't see a bunch that's got some interesting mannerisms. And you're like, Hmm. I mean, it, I see him in press conferences and I see some of the things he does, but I also see some of those things that Bill Belichick does. And you're like, wow, that's a, that's a weird behavior. Okay. Uh, but you sort of get, you put all these together and, you know, you get this uh, uh, image of this quirky guy and, you know, now he's at Michigan and he's got all this talent and money and he can't beat Ohio State. He can't win a Big Ten championship. And these things just build on you. And, you know, he knows that's what he got into when he signed up for this. Uh, it's a little bit of a different angle when you think about the kids, because let's be honest, even when I was playing, so I'm I'm there in 88 through 92 did I really care what happened in 1969? Not really. I mean, I hear the stories about Bo's first win over Woody, but I mean, those dudes are old to me. I mean, did they care about my five Big Ten championships? Not really. I mean, they want one, absolutely. But, you know, they have their own set of uh, issues that they have to go through. And I mean, obviously they want to win, but, you know, it's going to take this team effort and the right group of players in the field. And, uh, you know, I think they've been very close. I mean, as a parent, I'm extremely happy with uh, Aiden having gone to Michigan. He's had a great experience thus far. He's getting a great education. His coaches have been awesome. Um, you know, that's what college football is about. The icing on top is, you know, some sort of a championship. You know, I don't, I don't really spend as much time focusing on national championships because that's a – you got to get lucky and you need a special, you know, a couple of special players – uh, to, to make that leap. And we're, we've been close. We've had some really good teams. 
it just just wasn't going to work out. But I think that this team has, you know, continued to respond to that. I mean, obviously our defense hasn't played very well against Ohio State. But, you know, hey, we're all just hopeful that it's going to change. Get a good experience, get these, these kids out there, and keep the rivalry where it needs to be. I love it, man. Thank you for, for your time, brother. Thank you for your service to your community and everything you've done battling COVID and, and certainly for your perspective as a, a parent of a collegiate athlete who is facing an unprecedented season as well. Uh, just awesome stuff, man. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks for sharing my story. Travis, what stood out to me most about that, first of all, is the paradigm shift in his job and the emotion that comes with that. I failed in one aspect. I wanted to ask him about his perspective that, that uh, about the, the PTSD might be coming on the backside of this for so many people. Um, it is such a paradigm shift. Not being able to treat a patient for fear of contracting COVID, having to tell loved ones that they can't see their loved one. Uh, extremely difficult. And then, of course, the newsworthiness of really breaking down the University of Michigan's plan to return to the field, not only as a physician who was a valuable resource, is a valuable resource for Jim Harbaugh and his staff, but also as a father. And a, that was a father, Travis, who said, I have zero concern about sending my son back to the gridiron to swap sweat with other players. Out of all the things that I've heard about the return of college football and should I be optimistic or not, this is somebody that is invested in more ways than just about anybody that is speaking on this subject. He is a former player. He is a doctor, and he's also a father. And if a doctor that is dealing with COVID-19 is willing to send his son, I trust that you know, we will have college football, and obviously, like you said, there's going to be people at test, but I think we're in good hands. And I thought the really interesting thing is that they have dorms set up for if, you know, a player tests and how they're – if you have roommates, that's who you practice with. Like, that's, yeah, that's some you, interesting stuff. That's your workout partners. It's all very meticulously considered, and it has to be. That was tremendous detail about what the plan is, how they plan to execute – that protocol to ensure that players have optimum opportunity to stay healthy. And if indeed one player does contract the virus, here's what we're doing immediately. And just I'm really grateful for Dr. Hutchinson's perspective, both as doctor and as parent. What I mean, there's not a lot of people out there, guys, who can offer that perspective. Uh, invaluable. Amazing. Before we move on, uh, I want to remind you guys that good oral health, listen, man, you got to have good oral health. Nobody wants funky breath. Nobody wants funky teeth. So let's talk about brushing your teeth. 75% of us use old worn-out bristles, and those things are ineffective. Even more people forget to floss daily. You know that face palm emoji? That's me. I'm not the best flosser. I need to do a better job. Dr. Bob Vaughn. My dentist, I'm sorry. I, I really have to do a better job. Good health starts with good habits. Quip makes that easy by delivering all the oral care essentials that you need to brush and floss better. 
The Quip electric toothbrush has timed sonic vibrations with 30-second pulses to guide a dentist-recommended two-minute routine, and there's even a sized-down version for kids, specifically designed for your little ones. Paired with Quip's anti-cavity toothpaste in mint or watermelon for the little ones, you get all the ingredients teeth actually need and none they don't. Quip also has an eco-friendly refillable floss with a dispenser you keep for life and expanding string that helps you clean in between. Quip brush head, toothpaste, and floss refills are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just five bucks each. That's it, five dollars each. A friendly reminder when it's time for a refresh and to stay committed to your oral health and shipping is free. Join more than 3 million happy customers and practice good oral care easily and affordably with Quip starting at $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash America right now, your first refill is free. Free at getquip.com slash America. That's Q-U-I-P dot com slash America. Quip, the good habits company. That was a fun podcast. I'm sorry that we have been absent. I will tell you that it's meant so much to us that you guys have reached out and told us that you've. I, I'm actually I actually look at my Instagram DMs sometimes, Travis. Sometimes I don't look at Twitter very much. I only really look at Twitter when Marty and McGee is on for three hours on Saturday mornings because that's such an interactive show. But Twitter DMs I do look at every now and again, uh, at least once a week. So. I am grateful for every one of you guys. I mean, I got people asking me, man, where y'all been? How come you haven't put out a podcast? And as I said, I've been all over creation, uh, doing NASCAR races and running around the country in an RV. Um, I hope everybody's healthy. Um, it's a very unique time in our country. And I've been discussing that on Sports Center and on the radio a lot. Love one another. Let's love one another. Let's do our very best to see the world through one another's eyes. I will never be able to see the same world that my black friends see. I can't, but I can try. And I am giving my all to try every single day. This is a movement. This is not a moment. This is a movement. And I'm very grateful for the feedback every one of you have offered for the discussions that I've had with folks on our linear television platforms, certainly for the open discussions Ryan McGee and I have had on Marty and McGee on Saturday mornings, and all of that in the wake of George Floyd's death and the push for racial equality and social justice that is marching nationwide. Stay safe, everyone. Try to love one another. Everybody have a great week.